I don't worry about anything anymore. What makes you so special? Everybody worries about something. Well, it's exactly what makes me so special. I don't even have to floss. What? The wretch. Concentered all in self. Living shall forfeit fair renown, and doubly dying shall go down. To the vile dust from whence he sprung, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. Sir Walter Scott. <laughs> what? You don't like poetry? I love poetry. I just thought that was Willard Scott. I was confused. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are in episode 18, and that is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has in store for us today. I've chosen 1993's Groundhog Day, written and directed by Harold Ramis, and starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell, notably with Chris Elliott and Stephen Tobolowsky. And it's the story of a self-centered TV weatherman who is experiencing the same day over and over again. Can you guess which day that is? Arbor. No. It's Groundhog Day. Okay. We begin with a jaunty little opening theme by George Fitton. It struck me right away, the score, the it, opening theme. It did me too, because I was fully expecting to hear that Delbert McClinton song. Blech. I've got a lot to say about Delbert McClinton. Yeah. Which we really? can get to. Oh, yeah. Are you, did you write to the fan club to get some background data? Or no. is this all from memory? No, this is all from a lifetime of experience with music and specifically in the last several years here, Texas music. Aha. Uh -huh. And the concept of the, quote, Texas legend, unquote. I, gotcha. But we'll get into that. For, but this... Um, Spoiler alerts for later in the show. Delver McClinton fans, hang on. Uh, or Delbert McClinton haters, hang on. That's probably more like it. Okay. Delbert McClinton fans need not stick around. Unless you're gluttons for punishment. Because you're not going to want to hear what I have to say, most likely. Delbert McClinton fans can check out my Delbert McClinton podcast, which comes out every Tuesday. It's four hours long. It's called Delbert! Exclamation point, And then a question mark. The opening... <laughs> oh, anyway. The opening theme. Okay. I was struck immediately by it. In a good way. In a good way, because it was immediately whimsical, and then a few seconds in, it takes this sort of darker Fellini-esque turn that I felt was very appropriate to underline the absurdity of what we were about to see. But then you're right. That all goes out the window as soon as City Skyline, Saxophone, yeah. 1993. It's Pittsburgh, and it's Delbert. So, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a downer, but... I think that's kind of interesting because that might be a little bit of a theme today on this episode. Conceptions that we had going into watching it, for both of us, this was not even the first, second, third time watching it, probably. So ideas that I know I had going in and then viewing it fresh this time. So we'll get into that as we go. Okay, so we're into the first four seconds. We are. We've gotten four There's seconds There's some music, in. and then some stuff happens. And here's a list of those things. How okay. about that? How about it? The action begins 
in the TV studio. And we see Phil doing his weather broadcast. And it's pretty smarmy and pretty silly. He then goes up to the news desk and he's having that interaction with the anchor person who reminds him, oh yeah, you've done this uh, Groundhog Day spot a few times, right? And he says, yes, it's the fourth time, Nan, that I'll be doing this the fourth time. So he clearly does not want to go on this assignment, which is to cover the groundhog. And this entire sequence in the television studio was shot sort of as an afterthought. It essentially serves as an introduction to Andy McDowell's character that we might not have otherwise gotten, I think is the primary reason it's there. The other reason I mention it is because it really sticks out aesthetically to me. Does it? It's one of those things that will bring up, like you said, a bunch during this, of things that we noticed going back to it this time. It's aesthetically inconsistent with everything else. It feels like it was shot on a TV studio set, but not in the way that films that are showing you television sets usually look. It seems inconsistent, and so immediately it was one of those things watching this time that pulled me out of it for a second because it seemed so disjointed. The thing it serves to do for me is make me really annoyed at Andy McDowell for mugging on the green screen because I think, is this her first day? It's not. I mean, it's not. Doesn't it's, he maybe ask it's her, her first day there. But at some point, too, he? when they're in the van. Are you new? Is what he says <laughs> to her. True. And she's definitely acting like it and in a kind of obnoxious way to me. But I thought you love Andy McDowell. I like Andy McDowell in this movie, and I'll try to explain that without becoming an Andy McDowell apologist. She says she does like blood sausages. Does she? Does she really? She likes blood sausage. She she says in the van. She sells blood sausages. By the seashore. Mm -hmm. So that should endear her to you, doesn't it? That may be. like blood sausage? That may be one of the only things in this particular film. So, so let's get in. Let's it's get time there. to get in the van and go to Punxsutawney. And it is Phil and Larry the cameraman, who is played by Chris Elliott. And Never we've better. got Rita, absolutely, and Rita in the back. And this was actually the first instance that I will return to a few times where I watched the film with no sound on. And just to give the listeners a little bit of backstory, you know this because you know me. I don't like to listen to things at a medium or high volume. Accurate? Accurate. It's a real pain in my ass. <laughs> just audible is just fine for me. Like it drives me crazy, especially if we're putting on something that I intend on falling asleep to because you pitch the volume just low enough that it's distracting enough to keep me awake the whole Time. Or you put it just loud enough to be blaring in my ear the entire time I'm trying to sleep. You're a crazy It's a real person. pain in my ass. <laughs> anyway, so... So you're watching the Max Sennett version. It's not a new thing to me to watch films with no sound on. You can ask Darcy Shaw about the time she called me and I was watching Baywatch with no sound on, trying to figure out what was Hold happening. On. Films? No, on TV. Just, just any entertainment period. With no sound. You mentioned this to me when we were getting ready to do the show, specifically about Andy McDowell's performance. You, yes. You suggested that I watch it just for that reason, knowing that I'm not a huge fan. And Nor am I. But I think that her performance in this deserves a second watch. 
and listen and no listen actually i'm saying no with no sound on so a watch a second watch i'll stand by my first a second statement. silent watch yes so you can actually observe her reaction her and her performance rather than because i don't think that the dialogue always serves her very well or her line this, delivery or her line delivery okay it's maybe it's an accent thing could be or and uh, just maybe not really her strong suit necessarily, but she's a good reactor. Okay. And the van is the first time that I noticed that. Because I think if you watch what she's doing, she sits back and has a really interesting reaction that makes me actually like her character more. We arrive in Puxitani, and Phil is pulling his prima donna act, and he doesn't want to stay at the hotel that Larry and Rita are staying at. And Rita, being a good producer, has actually booked him at a B&B. The first indication to me that she embodies all of these qualities that the film wants to convince you are... Good, desirable. Good and desirable. Desirable more so than good, even. That she is, and this is in big quotation marks, nice, but that she's also... Very competent and very professional. Were those not on your OkCupid okay profile for what you were looking for? I believe what I said was no crybabies and no milk sops. Okay. So speaking Jackpot. of Max Sennett, so Phil is at his bed and breakfast and he is all settled in. We see the first instance of the clock striking 6 a.m., which is the start of the day. And we meet in the bed and breakfast a couple of the characters that we will return to again and again. Even before that, almost right before that, you mentioned the clock striking 6. This whole sequence to me is the very first point for me at which this is extremely relatable because I can think of no worse way to wake up than a morning zoo Followed by small talk in a hallway. To me... <laughs> and Sonny and Cher? Or does that count? I'm a fan Who of Sonny and Cher, actually. Okay. I'm, I'm in a weird way. There are certain things about their career that I really love. Especially Sonny. I think that guy was way smarter than people give him credit for. That's true. Check out your uh, Sonny Bono podcast. <laughs> that That's every Wednesday. bono <laughs> Anyway, to me... The setup is <laughs> okay. the the idea that's important already is that there's nothing that remarkable about this morning. It's these obnoxious little obsequious, unctuous interactions that we might have on any given day that you don't particularly enjoy. But to me, there. there's nothing to indicate to the audience on the first viewing that this is anything abnormal. But to me... If that's me, I'm already in hell. I haven't had to, not even having to go through it multiple times. The first and only time, this is purgatory, as far as I'm concerned, socially. I was in purgatory in that shower that has the wraparound curtain. I can't handle that Ooh, crap. Only people in the movies get in the shower before checking the temperature. That's true. Drives me up the wall. <laughs> Suitcases with nothing <laughs> in them. do do Suitcases with nothing Ew, the in them. the water's hot. And not checking the temperature of the shower, just turning it on while you're standing in it. Also hanging only, up the phone without saying goodbye. Only happens in the movies. Maddening. Anyway. Anyway, he has the guest interaction in the hallway. He meets up with the B&B proprietress. 
and they're having these obnoxious conversations. This is also the first opportunity where you get to see his sort of classist big city. Yes. Interaction I'm so much smarter than all of you. The little people. Mm-hmm. He is then headed out towards Gobbler's Knob, which is the <laughs> Gobbler's Knob make you laugh? It does, because I think that, along with Heidi too on the <laughs> theater marquee? marquee, are two great examples of super nice guy, family guy, Harold Ramis, still having some of that National Lampoon humor yeah. bubbling in his stomach somewhere. And he has to throw in just this slightly filthy... <laughs> Gobbler's Knob as the name where all the families come to congregate to have their special Groundhog Day celebration. And on the way to to Gobbler's Knob, he meets the next series of our characters that we will see in every interaction that he has from now on when he wakes up every day again. First, we see the old man who is uh, clearly a homeless person. He doesn't acknowledge his existence. He keeps moving. And then we meet beloved Stephen Tobolowski's character, Ned Ryerson, one for the ages. He has your favorite line. He has my favorite line. Not the same lines. He's one of my two favorite lines. Okay. But this is the funniest joke in the whole thing. The biggest laugh for you. The biggest laugh for me when he's trying to jog Bill Murray's memory. And one of the things that he uses to do that is the fact that He had shingles in high school. Real bad. Real bad. And that's funny enough as it is. But then on top of that, to me, the real comic genius of that whole little monologue is when he says, almost didn't graduate. Incorrect, sir. (laughs) A funnier line comes afterwards when he says, I used to date your sister Mary Pat a few times until you told me not to. That's the best line. We will agree to disagree. Anywho, shingles is way watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> shingles is way funnier than dating a sister. <laughs> I just like that her name's Mary Pat. That's pretty good, actually. Pretty that funny. is a nice bit of Midwestern. Not just Midwestern, but folksy. that whole tradition of being very specific about the sound of the words you mm-hmm. use in comedy was a Krusty the Clown lesson. You know, Wizzle Kalamazoo, Kankakee. All of these town names that... Kankakee, I had that real bad one time. I almost didn't graduate. Walla Walla. That whole thing. Mm-hmm. You can tell that name is a great example of of someone tweaking and really engineering a joke for the most sonic punch. The name is a great choice. When will you be at the uh, Sheridan Hotel doing your comedy masterclass in writing? I'm opening for Shecky Green. Okay. In the Altoona Ramada. <laughs> I'll be in there uh, playing keyboards in the, in the uh, Smuggler's Lounge. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'll meet you after the show. And anyway, he keeps going. He at last gets to Gobbler's Knob. Try not to laugh. I okay. see you smirking. And he delivers his first on-air broadcast for the Groundhog Day. And it's okay. It's not terrible. It's it's professional. It's slick, I'll say. It's slick. It's, again, pretty smarmy. And he decides he's not going to do another run, even though Rita asks him to. And day over, Phil has delivered his portent. This is Phil the Groundhog. They share the name. Which is that they will be having six more weeks of winter. Still, to the uninitiated, 
nothing is awry. If you don't yeah. know what the movie's about so far, everything seems perfectly normal. And you may be wondering what is about to happen. What is so funny about all this? We've had no indication of anything mystical, metaphysical. And at this point is when they try to head back to Pittsburgh and get caught in the storm. So they've got to stay in Punxsutawney again. So 6 a.m. dawns again. I had that same, or my parents had that same clock radio. Mm -hmm. Did yours? Were the numbers slapped down? Same style. Ours was black, not white. Okay. Ours was that fake plywood. (laughs) (laughs) 6 a.m. dawns again, and we hear the same song. We hear I Got You Babe Again. And the not first, just the same song. The same morning zoo slapstick being delivered. And he realizes, well, some, something's wrong. So this first stage begins. And the first stage is confusion. He doesn't know what's happening. He looks out the window and realizes this looks exactly the same. He has the same uh, shower, cold temperature. He goes down the stairs again to be met by the same guest. Same interaction with the proprietress. Same trip out to Gobbler's Knob. So something's up. He doesn't know what's going on. At this point, it would be legitimate for him to think this entire town somehow got together and is putting me on. That this is a huge practical joke. That confusion starts to turn to fear, essentially. And he's trying to explain to Rita that something's wrong here. I I don't know what's going on. She doesn't believe him. She tells him that he essentially needs to get his head examined, which he does by Harold Ramis and by a psychiatrist. And he doesn't know what's going on. And then that stage actually pretty rapidly turns into the no consequences stage. One of my favorite stages. It is. Okay. Where this dawns on him that... This recurring event, this same day happening over and over again, is the ultimate liberation. He is convinced he is stuck in it, and this is never going to end. Why would there be any rules? Why would there be any consequences? After he tests it a few times and realizes, no matter what he does, he's still going to wake up 6 a.m., unscathed, everything reset. So this is really his... Bucket period. He is out for some fun and out to uh, try to get laid, too. So during this entire period of the freewheeling no consequences thing is when he is learning to manipulate the situation. It's not the period where he is beginning to learn about himself, but rather what there is for him to gain. And he's doing that by learning how to manipulate the individual characters, the people that he meets on the street. He's learning and memorizing situations that will be to his advantage. He's gathering these details that he can use. He's even stealing techniques because of his interaction with Ned. He applies that whole, you, you were in, high, in school. high school. And I sat where, and your teacher's name was. In the seduction of one of the townsfolk, Nancy. So he's using all that to further his own ends, and that is all. He is, at this point, still preying on niceness, which Rita is basically the embodiment of. Nice is not such a desirable thing. That's me and you, maybe. Because this thing is universally beloved, I think. This film is the It's a Wonderful Life of its time. I was actually going to save this for later, but... A couple of tidbits. It's in the uh, 100 Greatest Comedies. 
huge high ratings are Roger Ebert's great movies. It's in the National Film Registry. So yes, it's clearly beloved. While all this is happening, though, with him, what you see him doing is all about gain and consumption. Literal consumption. Because he can eat and drink whatever. It's not, nothing's going to touch him. And so there's not a lot of growth in this stage. But that moves us into his attempt to use all of this stuff to bring all of these skills to bear on his relationship with Rita. And here, during that phase, is the scene that is the most crucial to my interpretation of this. You feel really strongly about this. Yeah, this is the scene that informs my entire response to the film, how I feel about it. And it's a very conflicted thing. There are elements of the film that I really love. And we'll get to this maybe in a greater discussion at the end. But where I come down on this after having seen it this time, the concept I love. The content I do not. And it is no more crystallized than in the scene where he asks her in an attempt to catalog these things for future use, what she wants. And her response, if it was just her response, fits perfectly with the character. She says, career, love, marriage, family. The thing that drives me insane and makes this a movie that I cannot relate to at my deepest is that she prefaces that with, you know, just the same thing everybody wants. Uh, well, I meant... At which point... I immediately think, movie, you can fuck right off with that. I think that she says, and I'm sorry that I'm, I may be inaccurate, but I feel pretty strongly. I've watched it over and over again to make sure. She says, I guess. I guess what everybody wants. But the implication is that... Well, okay, here's where I'm, here's where I'm going with this. Because the implication... Okay, go, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Because I have... <laughs> the rest of the movie is my proof. Okay. This is when watching her without the sound is really, really helpful. Because her face is so unsure. This is not, uh, this is not the same character, but I'm just going to use this as an example. Reese Witherspoon in an election. This is not someone who is so stridently assured of themselves. This is a person who is still in that stage of kind of figuring it out. Because she says later she goes with the flow. We see that interaction later when he is overcompensating from his moving too fast sexually and he's talking about adopting kids and all this good, clean fun. And she clearly doesn't want that. She doesn't want it because he's presenting it like a maniac at that point. Well, that's true. That's true. But I think that she's actually more unsure. And the line, this is where I feel like the dialogue doesn't necessarily serve the purpose and doesn't serve her strengths. She can play the uncertainty a little bit more, but the dialogue is more wishy-washy. Okay. Well, here's where you are completely wrong about all of those things. <laughs> okay. Because this movie, when you watch the whole thing and you watch it repeatedly, to be so much about the soul is the most soulless, white bread, as evidenced from the very beginning with that Delbert McClinton song. Uh, yes, that's true. It is all about the suburban American dream. It is 2.3 nuclear family, white picket fence, which he literally lifts her over as if carrying her over a threshold at the end. Literally. Well, he did that because the gate was frozen. That is true. But... It sort of looked like he throws her over, which I... It is highly symbolic. And it's the thing that I just cannot get my mind around 
watching this, being the person that relates to the maybe more cynical side of his character to begin with, what does he even want to pursue this for? This is not, I understand, this, okay, here's the thing. You can be nice and you can want to have a partner who is compassionate and thoughtful and all of these things and still there can be adventure. It, it doesn't have to be all I want for my life is to follow this path that I think is laid out. Whether she's unsure about it or not in her face, you know when you think about what's going to happen with these characters for the rest of their lives, it's going to be exactly what she laid out in the diner. They're not going to climb mountains together. They're not going to conquer the world. They're going to do what she said, which is family, career, marriage, love. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead, which is not what I want to do. Okay. And we can still come back, but I don't want to keep saying, well, I'll get to that later. Okay. But he specifically says to her, and actually I do want to come back to this. Well, okay, I'm going to, screw it. I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to move, I'm going to move to my own drummer with this. Okay. They have the thesis statement spoken a couple of scenes later when he has tried to gather all of the seduction material to actually seal the deal and try to get her to sleep with him. So he's gotten her up to his room. She realizes that this is just one long setup and says to him, she could never love anyone like him because he doesn't love anyone but himself. And he replies, but I don't even like myself. So we have this specific thesis statement that sets him out on this path. Honestly, it's pretty shallow. We've seen it a million, billion, trillion times. Let me be worthy of this person who will then love me. Our issue is, why do you even want to love this person? What is it in them to be worthy? Later on, after he's actually spent even more time getting to know her, he says to her that she's the kindest, prettiest all of these things that, in fact, are pretty uh, white bread, I would say. They're the mediocre of the superlatives. But he talks about something happened to him when he saw her the first time, and he knew that he just wanted to hold her tightly, which he's not saying, I fell in love with you the first time that I saw you, but he recognizes that something within him moved slightly. And I, I do buy that. I buy that in that scene. I don't buy it earlier. I don't buy that he would be even, even be capable of it, and I don't buy it that he has no knowledge of her at the moment that he sort of feels that, but he sees her doing something that is, in fact, new to him, and something changes within him, and that he spent these years, possibly. I was just going to mention that. I agree, too. I buy it, too, in that scene because of the time span. It's still... I still doubt, I, but... I, I'm with you, yes. I'm with you on that. I do buy it more. I guess maybe I buy it more than you do. And watching his face, it feels like he has earned that sentiment. I believe that. And that she has earned it too. She's actually earned more than this sort of person mugging from the for the camera in the very first scene. With the elapsed time, to me it makes a huge difference how long you think this has been going on. In the film, it's presented as... 30 plus days, almost 40 days, you see... Literal days right. that we see shot. Individually yeah. portrayed. Harold Ramis is on record as saying it's approximately 10 years. 10 years stuck with the same person doing the same routine over and over and over again. I can see where several things could happen. 
you could truly grow to love them and appreciate all the things about them that you think are great from such close observation. And I'm sorry that the film takes the opportunity, instead of elucidating those, it sticks with kindest and prettiest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could also be a case of Stockholm Syndrome, where <laughs> you are being held hostage in this situation, literally, yes, for a decade. And how much choice do you have but to begin to sympathize with the person that is not necessarily your captor in this case, but is ever-present and is your main foil throughout. Because when this starts, to me, it's just conquest. That's his motivation. Definitely. And as he evolves, that motivation evolves. But even when you get into the phase, which comes later, where he is truly learning and evolving, it begins with the scene where he tells her he might be a god. When that happens, to me, the thesis statement is right in that part of the film. He's explaining that to her and posits that maybe the real God actually just uses tricks. He's just been around so long, he knows everything. Right. Here's where the movie makes a turn toward acceptance of his situation. And the phase after that, it becomes about service and consideration, enlightenment and creativity. He's learning to make things and express himself. And even in that, it is still a little self-serving because... Those piano lessons are about learning an instrument because it's what she likes. So even once we get into this late stretch of the film where it is all about his enlightenment, it's still not, uh, it's it's ivory soap. It's 99 and 44 100th percent pyramid. I disagree with you slightly in that comment, which is that he learns the piano because it's what she likes. He learns the piano from my single favorite moment in the entire film from the first time I watched it up through this time, which okay. is him sitting in the diner. He hears the music on the boombox, which I love. It's not, it's so unfancy. And I know you've sat in that same diner as well. He hears that and he's moved by it. That's why he goes to learn to play the piano. She says in her breakdown of the perfect guy plays an instrument. And he puts that on his list of things to check off. Damn it. You're always right. (laughs) It's infuriating. Anyway, you, okay. We're going to come to yet another thesis statement later on. Oh, I didn't even tell you what the thesis statement was. The quote, the actual line is... Is everybody taking notes here? The actual line was, it doesn't make any difference. That's the thesis statement. That's where the whole movie swivels towards acceptance. That, to me, is his character's thesis statement. It doesn't make any difference. And that's that's what allows him to then move on... And actually get into the enlightenment part. Okay, don't move on from that because that's actually my favorite stage, which is complete resignation and then suicidal thoughts. That's the one I I uh, identified with the most. We also kind of skipped <laughs> the stage where he... I'm sorry to gloss over... <laughs> sorry to gloss over this deep, dark well of sadness that that's, dwells within you. That's why I love Bill Murray. And I wrote actually wrote that down. Bill Murray's Deep Well of Sadness. You did. You didn't even know that. No, I didn't. You did literally write that. That's why Bill Murray is my favorite, because that is what I identify with. And he has his next thesis statement in the scene, which I love, which is that I've killed myself so many times, I don't even exist anymore. Okay? Just fucking put that on the movie poster. (laughs) I'm going to go see that. You are. But it's not going to... It's, uh, yeah, 
watch the watch the movie without sound and just put it on for that and then see how you relate to this film. I don't ah. disagree. I don't disagree that there are elements in particular lines even of, that his character has going on that I identify with. It is what she wants and his pursuit of that that baffles me. I do think that he moves on from that because I'm going to refer again to that's my favorite moment, which he's listening to this music. He's also reading these amazing books at that time. That is for him. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it's kind of influenced by what she says she studied as well. But anyway, anyway, I'm throwing my hands up in the air and I'm moving on. Okay. Okay. We are in this suicidal phase. This is where he's also had the opportunity to actually become more natural with her. So he gets her up to his room again in a, in a lovely way. That's when he talks about having killed himself so many times he doesn't even exist anymore. This is in a romantic comedy. This is in a bedroom scene. That's when he has that line, gosh, you're an upbeat lady, which is, I don't, no one else could deliver that line. You're right. And uh, per- Perfection, that line. And... I think that he, again, if you sort of take my advice and maybe watch the film with no sound, especially Andy McDowell parts, you will see that it really comes off as if he's ribbing her and she has a, a sense of humor about it. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a fun thing. It's not he. It's not his smarmy it's not delivery. It is not. But you see that he actually enjoys it. And his face in that scene when he, when he is just reacting to her talking, watch his eyes move. It is wonderful. Wonderful. Take take that bit of advice and run with that. He's so open and natural at that point. And so is she. That gives her the room. I think he's given her the room to be more natural than other on-screen partners possibly have. The last thing I want to talk about in this stage as well. Uh, he has one of my other really enjoyable lines, which is, I promise I won't touch you much. That's just always <laughs> makes me laugh. He ta- that this is when he talks about holding her. This is when he talks about the moment that he first saw her and something happened to him. When I feel like he's really actually earned that. And that he wanted to hold her as hard as he could. And then this is when we see with the next morning when she's gone, he's still in this cycle. This is when he sets out to essentially earn that. This is the good deed phase. When he's catching the kid falling from the tree or my favorite when he is uh, helping the old ladies with their car trouble and they look so delighted. I really enjoy that. And a number of other things. So he is learning the music and he's the talk of the town and he's helping all of these people out. We are heading towards our resolution and we're starting to see the culmination of all of this work that he has done for himself and for others. And it's the night of the Groundhog Day event. So it's the Groundhog Day ball or dance or whatever it is. The one with the bachelor auction and... When Chris Elliott is so wonderful (laughs) and I want him to be in every movie. Two bits. (laughs) I'll give you two bits for that guy. (laughs) This scene at the ball is yet further evidence of my complete white bread theory. That's true. Watch these people dance when Bill Murray is playing on stage. He's also playing a song from Ghostbusters. I don't know if you knew that or not. What's the song? Oh, my God. Uh, Cleaning Up the Town, I think is the name of it. The Bus Boys? Yeah, that's it's when they're scrambling out of the library. Gotcha. It's their kind of hijinks theme. Anyway, yeah. 
Yeah, watch the crowd. If you do not believe yet in my theory that this is all about the dogged pursuit of the banal and mediocre, watch the people dancing to Bill Murray playing the piano. Half of them are wearing plaid, I think, too. So that helps. Which, again, your, goes back to my point. whole Delbert McClinton laying the groundwork in the opening. Here's the Delbert McClinton thing. Oh, Lord. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to lean back. Let's do the work. And I'm loath to say something bad about creative people, about artists in general. But there are very definitely tiers to the whole Texas legend thing. Some at the top, very legit. Towns Van Sant, our sainted Towns Van Sant, belongs at the top of that pyramid. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson, of course. But then, when you get down a few steps, there's this whole layer, and believe me, this comes from years of being in bands, working in record stores, literally dealing with them on a personal level all the time for a long, long time. There's a tier, and I'm not sure if this works in other states the same way. I don't think it does, because I've been to other states and nobody has the same. There aren't thing. Massachusetts legends or... Jonathan Richmond? That's true. I mean, but... But not in the same way. No, Jonathan Richmond and Delbert McClinton, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of the same process. No. No offense to, to anybody. Well... Sort of but there's this whole tier of Texas, quote, legends, unquote, whom have achieved that status, I think, mainly out of stubbornness and just sticking around this long and playing the same mediocre. I mean, listen to that song, the production. I understand it was the time, but listen to that music and the slick late 80s, early 90s coding that's laid on it. Yeah, it's terrible. That comes Backup from singers. a career of playing boring average music for 40 years to the same type of crowd that is dancing to Bill Murray playing that piano. Whew, that was a takedown of Delbert McClinton. <laughs> There's also the element to Texas Legends. And this one just drives me up the wall. This is a complete digression, sorry. But let me tell you this, Texas Legends, if you're okay, out there listening. If you're listening. Just because you don't like paying rent and you've slept on a succession of girlfriends' couches since 1973, you're not a fucking gypsy. Okay? It's true. You are not a gypsy. You just smell. <laughs> you just smell bad. And nobody likes you and your credit's no good. You're an itinerant folk singer. Maybe a really good one, but you are not a gypsy. You're not Woody Quit Guthrie either. romanticizing yourself overly. Whew! Let's move on. All right. Sorry, uh, I harbor some bitterness after years and years of selling these records and seeing who buys them. And, yeah. <laughs> where where were we? I don't, I don't know. know. Probably. I'm covered in sweat now. And spit for me, probably. <laughs> it's flying. Oh, yeah, a bunch of white people are dancing at this party. Right. Okay, we're at the ball. Bill Murray's wearing his Ray-Bans, and he's super cool and everybody in town loves him and Andy McDowell is intrigued by this by his, all of these facets of his personality that she never knew existed and she bids on him in the bachelor auction and wins him so they are then together and we have uh, what we discovered to be our final night where he says thesis statement number 114 uh, for, let me step back for a moment 
This is the first scene when they are outside and he is sculpting her in the ice and then they have sort of their romantic uh, falling in love kind of thing before they actually get into the hotel room. This is the first time that I actually watched without the sound on. And so I got to see her face. And this was all because I was watching Groundhog Day on, I think, AMC at the time. And this is probably 10 years ago. I'd already seen the movie multiple times. Not a big Andy McDowell fan. And I was watching the movie and they used to do this thing where they would have the commentary bits, almost kind of like pop-up video, but it would be pop-up commentary. Mm -hmm. And Harold Ramis, I believe was talking about how much he actually enjoyed working with her and how good she was and how he felt people really didn't give her a fair shake. And I happened to be watching Without the Sound and I continued going and I really began to get invested in her and in her performance. So that was that first scene, the ice sculpture outdoors. She's bathed in a beautiful light. So of course she's a beautiful woman. So it's not going to be a difficult thing to, to become attracted to her. And then they go into the hotel room again. And then he has that final instance where he's reading to her and he talks about how he is feeling. Well, you've convinced me with this no sound thing. I'm going to go back and do that and give her more of a fair shake and most likely just transfer that intense dislike to Madeline Stowe. Okay. Next week on the podcast, it's uh, Tomorrowland. Wait, no, that's not what it's called. What did I say? It was Closet Land. What that movie I watched about? in high school when I was in Amnesty International and very serious. With Madeline Stowe? Yes. I had binders. And then they wake before, up together and it's a new day. Further, those of you that know the kind of person I am, you must also know the personal hell it is for me, for the person that's dearest in the world to me to be a fan of Lisa Simpson episodes. <laughs> not to just get to skip those. Not to just get to skip those at every instance. That is my Groundhog Day. Watching Lisa Simpson episodes. The, especially the Dustin Hoffman one, where he's her teacher, Mr. Bergstrom. No, especially the Jazzman one. Because... Oh, that one's terrible. That one's <laughs> at awful. Least you Talk admit, about... At least you admit that. Oh, God, that. and that... I like Carole King, and that song is... It makes me cringe just thinking about it. Oh, it's awful. Any Okay. This Personal episode. takedown of Carol King. <laughs> except that's not what I intended because I really like Carol King. Right. Just that song. Just that song. This episode is full of digressions. <laughs> and rants. It's a new day. He's broken the cycle. And all is well. And then unfortunately we get played out with that song. They go to live happily ever after. They do. In their minivan. Quite, yeah. <laughs> so, which... Leads me to ask at this okay. point, okay, if the mission of the show is to talk about the things we love, the films we love, and the things we love about them, how did we come to pick this title? You know, it's interesting. I believe that you had the first suggestion of this. Now, to give you listeners some insight into the process, it's actually a pretty freewheeling process to pick our alternating episodes. We go, we, we have a list of things that we really want to talk about. But we don't put those by date, and we're not bound to those choices. So, for example, if I'm just really feeling something that I really want to talk about, we're going to go with that. Right. We definitely go by feeling. We don't schedule anything more than the next episode is not scheduled until the episode before it is done, essentially. And so we'll often talk about, okay, what are you feeling like? What should we do? And 
this past week, I was not lighting on something that was really pushing my buttons. Nothing was seeming really exciting to me. And you mentioned this, we were talking about comedies. You mentioned this one and I thought, oh yeah, I think that that would actually be a really good idea. So I go with the excitement that I feel. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show, these conceptions that we had going in and how those might have changed by watching this particular viewing of the film, because this is probably not even the 10th time I've seen this. I've seen it many times. I haven't seen it for a long time. I realized that my conception of the film, the things that I loved about it, the things that I didn't like haven't changed because I always loved Bill Murray's performance in this. I always enjoyed the deep well of sadness that spoke to me. Do you feel like this is the ground zero for the Bill Murray that we have now, whose career was resurrected by Wes Anderson, that melancholy elder statesman? Do you think that this was the, the you, genesis of that? You know what I love, though? Actually, Mad Dog and Glory. Now that you mention that, I actually think one step before this, quick change. Oh, God. I love that even more. That's where... Okay, well, why are we not doing those two? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) sorry. This is a beloved film. We've already established that. I mentioned three particular sources. It's in the National Film Registry, for God's sake. I mean, it is popular. Mm -hmm. Does it stand up? It does for me. The things, as I mentioned, the things that I loved about it, I still love, and they have not diminished. I haven't found more things to love. It already had a pretty high bar for me, but I wouldn't put it in the films that I love, 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 love. I don't think it's in my top 50. I would say maybe not even my top 100. His performances, these things that I started to see in Andy McDowell's performance, those have grown for me. Those I actually really enjoy. There are huge laughs in this, specific ones that I love and don't get tired of hearing. And I don't get tired of watching this film again. What are the things that diminish for you, though? Are there things that you don't enjoy specifically? There's things that I don't enjoy specifically. Those haven't changed. And it's a couple of of lines. I never liked that don't drive angry bit where he's got the groundhog in Mm -hmm. the truck. I never enjoyed that. It seems cheap. It seems like the easy joke. Yeah, it's just kind of, it doesn't come off to me. Mm -hmm. I don't like in the beginning when he's going through his kind of bad Phil lecherous statements. He doesn't, he's not really selling it to me. He's selling it when he's being sad and open. Mm -hmm. Not when he's just sort of that kind of one note. They're not as funny as I want them to be, I guess, is where I'm going with that. But the parts that I love, as I said, I still love. We mentioned the old man character, the homeless man, Mm -hmm. where he has a significant relationship with him. He tries to save him. That begins first with giving him money, getting him food. I love the way he interacts with this guy. He calls him dad and father, which is a, a particular choice that's really beautiful to me in this. If I were to call someone that, it, w- it would not sound right coming out of my mouth. It does from him. I just love that. It's a, it's a lovely little choice. I love the scene where he is trying to resuscitate him, but we don't get to see Bill Murray's face until he looks up. But that scene where he's looking down, that speaks a lot to me. And I mentioned that my single favorite moment of he's in the diner listening to the music and he looks so happy and content. I think that that's beautiful. And then lastly, when he's actually delivering what becomes his final Groundhog Day broadcast, 
everyone is so delighted and moved. And I, and I think it's a beautiful speech. It's a beautiful poem that he reads. And that really speaks to me. Have I answered the question? So I, I don't exactly know why I ended up alighting on this one. Why do you think you mentioned it? Because I knew the mood you were in. And because I knew certain things are particularly your favorites. For instance, Ghostbusters, which we will get to do an episode on eventually. We're probably equally split on that one, too. Mm-hmm. It'll probably... I wonder I wonder which way that split would fall. <laughs> It'll shake out about <laughs> this way. But probably the major difference being you love that one. That one's your in your pantheon. Yes, definitely. And for me, it's just sort of where this one is. There are certain things I really like about it, but it is not that high for me. So it, it ends up not actually filling the brief of the show, but I'm really happy to talk about it. That's why I stuck with it after we got to the point where we realized maybe this isn't what we thought it might be, because I really liked the discussion that it was going to generate, because we don't necessarily have to unanimously agree on every choice, and I don't want it to get boring where there aren't points of contention here or there about these things. Yeah, I chose it. I suggested it initially because I thought you might really enjoy doing the show. And then as that evolved over the course of a couple of weeks after we watched it and talked about it more, it seemed like there were a lot more interesting discussions about it to be had than just, oh, remember when this funny thing happened? Yes. Has it changed for you after multiple viewings? Probably. You had said, again, during the course of sort of preparing for this, that you think the viewer gets as much out of the film as they put in. That's true. That part hasn't changed. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said I liked the concept of it. I love the concept of it. To me, this movie functions like chess or any other well-designed game in that it's as challenging and you get as much out of it as you bring to it or as your opponent might bring to it. So my deep well of sadness calls to the other deep well of sadness. Mm-hmm. It can be as simple as you want it to be. If you're the kind of person that just loves the don't drive angry joke, it's in there for you. But if there are things that you want to examine about, for instance, your study of Buddhism or your Catholic notion of purgatory, or, there are a lot of ideas in it that you can bring your experience to bear upon and use it as a springboard for much deeper consideration. I like that it fun- I love, I should say, that it functions like that, that it has that built into it. It could have been made a million different ways, and this way is a pretty good one, to me not a great one, but the idea is a great idea. What would you do then with your Groundhog Day? Would you rewrite uh, the opening theme song, opening and closing theme song? <laughs> the first thing I would do is ditch the music. If I had 10 years, are we just t- say say we have yeah, 10 years? Yeah, say we have 10 years. I would hope I would use it in a similar fashion in that... Bang ladies and then <laughs> save kids? <laughs> Almost identically to that. In that order. I, in, I indulge my every worst instinct and, like Rasputin, survive stabbings, bludgeonings, drownings, electrocution, to be resurrected as this thing that then heads down the path of enlightenment and improvement. I would hope that I spent 10 years somewhere, I end up a better man than when I came into it. Now, 
I do not think I would squander that opportunity on Andy McDowell or any other representative of that sort of lifestyle. If I am going to become a smarter, stronger, more compassionate person, I hope that the payoff for that is I implement that in a way that's not just pursuit of the white picket fence. It seems like a waste to not spend that growth on something literally great. Not in the way that most people use that word, but on a greater idea than that, on a greater pursuit. Now, I don't mean love is not worth pursuit, obviously, but this manifestation of the same sort of, I, I can I can put it exactly, this is exactly how it feels. It is pleasantness. It's not greatness. And I wouldn't, I would hate to squander that kind of growth on pleasantness over greatness. What about your Groundhog Day? Nope, you summed it up perfectly, and I cannot possibly top that. Okay. <laughs> Which I was going to say before you said that. That's a big cop-out. Is, is that written in your notes? D- ditto. Whatever Cole Whatever says. Whatever Cole said. Just... Plus, I'll eat more chocolate. <laughs> Plus, I'll bang more people. <laughs> well, you never know how many days you have. Oh, it just, it just got deep. brought it to sharp relief. Thanks. <laughs> so you just go see Heidi 2 a hundred times. Yeah. What movie would you go see over and over again? Well, I'm so happy you asked because that leads to my recommendation for today. Okay. I uh, decided to choose something that if I were to have to watch it over and over again would be a pleasure, an emphasis on pleasure. And my recommendation is Purple Noon, directed oh. by René Clément, starring Alain Delon, blah, 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 from 1960. We just watched it. I introduced you to it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, he is beautiful. <laughs> oh. Watch that with the sound off. Whew. Whoa. That sounds like a great idea. I'll see you later. <laughs> But truly, it is an exceptional movie and well worth watching. And if I had to watch Alain Delon's beautiful face and body in the Italian seascape, I can think of few things that would be less pleasurable than that. I would love to spend life's long winter with Alain Delon. No offense, honey. None taken. Who can blame you? No, no one. No one with eyes. Well, my recommendation isn't nearly as bonerific as yours, but I'm going to stick with the time loop theme and recommend Triangle from 2009, a film by Christopher Smith starring Melissa George in which... Definitely not bonerific. Ugh. <laughs> Are sorry. you kidding me? Those teeth? I like the wacky teeth a little bit. Ooh, okay. I like... sorry, sorry to interrupt your recommendation. To me, that functions like Carol Lombard's scar. I like, like those little imperfections mm-hmm. that draw attention to the fact that this is a human being. Enjoy sitting across the breakfast table watching that gnawing on some carrots every day. <laughs> I didn't say I wanted to watch it every day. <laughs> okay. My connection this is the time, time loop. You're right. I'm sorry. I'll show that. She's a single mom with an autistic son that goes on a boat trip with her friends 
And I don't want to spoil anything about it because the time loop nature and the recurring events and the way they unfold and the way she begins to control them are integral to the surprise. But it's a really interesting and pretty well done. It's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but in keeping with our theme, it's a pretty well done take on the recurring time loop thing. Worth watching it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Entertaining and interesting. And it is much more grim than this, obviously. It is not a romantic comedy. It is not a a journey of self-exploration. It is a psychological thriller with horror elements. So if you want to see this same idea treated with much darker themes, then check this out. And if you want to see a fascinating take on the Ripley character, which is Purple Noon, check that one out. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a group on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I wanted to say thanks this time to all the people who shared links to the show or reached out to us with their feedback. Aaron West over at Criterion Close-Up, as always, Thanks, Aaron, for being so supportive since we started the show. Grindhouse Dave and Jeff Duncanson are stalwart supporters who every show, show after show, are telling people about us and getting in touch with us. Craig Eastman and Fuds on Film. Brian Sauer. Matteo Boscarol. Tim Lego. RJ Tugas, who reached out to us after our Long Goodbye episode, and I wanted to specifically mention that he does a great blog called Make Mine Criterion, If you'd like to check that out, that blog is really fun. Doug McCambridge, who does the podcast Good Times Great Movies. Thanks to Doug for sharing links to the show. And we wanted to say a special thanks to Gary Meyer for reaching out via email to talk with us about our year-end episode that we did, where we did our roundup of favorite things that we saw for the first time in 2015. We really appreciate the feedback, Gary, and thanks for listening. In that email, Gary mentioned that he was curious about what it is that we do when we are not doing the show. So in case anyone else was curious, I thought we would let people know what that is. I manage a bookstore when I am not sitting behind this microphone. And I am a massage therapist and I manage a massage clinic. Something else that I think people are curious about that they've mentioned from time to time. Some say Leland provides the music for the opening and closing of the show. If you guys ever have any questions at all that you're curious about the production of the show or just things in general about us and the way we go about this, please let us know. We're always happy to answer those. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. One click gets you subscribed. And if while you're there and you enjoy the show, you would like to leave us a review, we would certainly appreciate any time that you took the time to do that. And lastly... If you would like to check out all of our other episodes and supplemental material, you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 